welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Emily Rothman, a professor of community health sciences at the Boston University School of Public Health. Dr. Rothman has authored more than 100 peer-reviewed publications that span the areas of intimate partner violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, and pornography. In 2016, she co-authored a curriculum for high school students about pornography and now provides training on that curriculum to sex educators and health teachers from around the world. Dr. Rothman is also the author of a forthcoming book to be published by Oxford University Press titled Pornography and Public Health. Today, we're going to be talking about the science of porn. I think this is a really important topic to explore because there are so many myths and misconceptions out there about how porn affects people. So I wanted to take the opportunity to set the record straight and talk about what the science actually says. Also, despite the fact that most teens will watch porn at some point, this is a subject that almost never gets addressed in sex education courses. So what do adolescents need to know, and how should sex educators and parents be tackling this topic? I'm really looking forward to this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Emily, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. I am so pleased to have you here. I've been a fan of your work ever since I came across your TED Talk last year on how porn changes the way that teens think about sex. And I honestly think it's one of the best, if not the best, porn talk I've ever seen. So if anyone listening hasn't seen it yet, go check it out after the podcast. The thing that I really appreciate about it is that it offers this really balanced and nuanced take on a politically polarizing subject. But it also goes beyond just summarizing and talking about what the research says. And it talks about how we can actually use that knowledge to inform sex education efforts. So thank you for that. Wow. Well, thank you for the compliment. And I'm a fan of your work as well. So I'm thrilled. Thank you. (laughs) So let's start by talking about how you came to study porn in the first place. I know you study a lot of different topics, but I'm curious as to how porn entered your research program and just why you think it's an important topic to study in general. Yeah. Okay. Well, I did not set out in life to become a porn researcher or think at any point during my graduate training that I was going to become a porn researcher. It really did just sort of happen. And basically the way that it happened is, you know, I've always been interested in dating, violence prevention, sexual violence prevention. And I was doing a study where the teenagers in the data set had been asked one question about pornography. And as we were doing the analysis, that variable popped out as really important. And to be completely honest, at that point, this was like the early 2000s, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time thinking about porn recently. I mean, I had seen some in you know high school, college. It had never really particularly been my thing or a problem to me one way or the other. 
And, and I hadn't really thought about it. And then, and I was like busy off having babies and doing whatever. And then the internet was sort of exploding and, and internet porn became a thing. And suddenly when this variable became such an issue in this data set, I thought, oh, well, what is porn all about lately anyway? And that's when I had to kind of become reacquainted with it, figure out what it was and maybe how it was affecting these teenagers and why it was relevant to the line of work that I was doing. So that was the sort of beginning of my journey into trying to understand uh, porn and its effect on adolescents. So you're an accidental porn researcher. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, that's kind of a similar story that I hear when I talk to other sex researchers and, and educators and therapists is that they didn't set out to do this line of work and didn't think about doing it from a really young age, but there was something that just caught or piqued their interest either in graduate school or some study that they were working on. And so, yeah, it's just always interesting for me to kind of learn about people's paths. But, you know, I also describe myself as an accidental sex researcher. You know, Mm -hmm. I never planned to get into this area, but hey, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world now. Yeah. So... Let's talk about the effects of porn and what the research actually says. I'm someone who has written a textbook on human sexuality that college students read. And as a result, I've had to get pretty familiar with the literature. And what I've seen is that there are a lot of conflicting and contradictory findings and claims. So let's talk first about the link between porn and sexual violence, because there are some studies that say that porn increases sexual violence, others that claim there's no effect, and yet others that claim that porn decreases sexual violence. So what's your take on all of this? How do you see the link between porn and sexual violence? And what do you think accounts for the fact that there are so many discrepancies in the research findings? Yeah, great question. And I love talking about this. So, and there's a lot to say. So here's the thing. I think that when people are asking questions about pornography and sexual violence at this moment in time, anyway, we almost have to think about it like two different levels. On the one hand, some people get curious about if an individual sits down and watches porn, does that increase the likelihood that they are going to then stand up, run out and commit murder or, or perpetrate sexual violence. You know, so the individual level question is one. There's a second question, though. People also wonder, well, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't raise an individual's percent likelihood, and we can talk about whether it does or doesn't, but maybe, maybe let's say it doesn't raise an individual's likelihood of perpetrating sexual violence. But I'm more curious about the population level. You know, if I think about the entire United States or the entire world or something like that, does the presence of sexually explicit material and the availability of it overall increase the likelihood that people engage in behaviors that are non-consensual? Is it changing norms, you know, social norms somehow around sexuality? So I see those as, you know, two maybe slightly different questions that both fall under this bigger umbrella question of, you know, porn and sexual violence. So taking the first one first, right? Like if someone watches pornography, does that increase the risk that they are going to perpetrate sexual violence? The answer to this, I know this is unsatisfying to a lot of people when researchers do that and do this thing and say it depends, but it really does depend. It really depends on who you are. And there's a number of research studies that have demonstrated that. So 
it's kind of the same thing as um, sitting down and eating something with a lot of sugar in it. Is that dangerous to you and going to cause health problems? You know, it depends who you are. Like, do you have diabetes going on or not? Or do you have other health issues going on underlying? So the same substance can truly affect different people differently. When it comes to watching pornography, it really does matter what somebody's, uh, what the context of that is, like maybe how frequently they're watching, what they're watching, what resources they have to help them um, interpret what they're seeing, their underlying psychopathology, if any. Like there's a whole bunch of different factors that can influence that risk. When I have parents who say to me something like, oh my goodness, I have an 11-year-old son and he saw pornography once. Do I have to worry that he's going to perpetrate sexual violence? I don't, I, I would say no, like the odds of it influencing one particular individual in the absence of any other risk factor information is very low. But there are some people who do become activated when they see certain forms of pornography, and we do have to worry about that. So people who work with um, certain populations of people who've committed um, sex offenses do have to think about that. The other question about is the availability of pornography in society changing social norms or, or sexual social norms in a way that we have to worry about? I don't know, but it, it could be. I, this is something that I worry about and that I think about. So in particular, when we're studying college populations or college-aged populations, and we see that the incidence of sexual violence is unacceptably high, uh, you know, it might be as much as one in four college-age women experience some form of sexual assault during their college experience, and one in six men, and I think for non-binary individuals, the rates are comparable to women. And so there's something going on there that's not okay. Something is causing too much sexual violence. Is porn part of the constellation of factors that may all be contributing? Um, it could be one factor. It can be a little bit difficult to tease out, you know, to what extent porn is influencing people's, you know, sexual scripts or what they think is okay to do during sex. But to the extent that we are able to look at it, I know of a bunch of researchers who are curious about that question and are concerned about it. At the same time, I temper that concern that I have with the knowledge that there are for sure plenty of people who are capable of looking at porn, enjoying porn, and not having it influence in any unhealthy way their sexual behavior. Part of that is when we say porn, we're using a very broad brushstroke to refer to all sexually explicit material. And there's a really wide variety of what counts as pornography out there. Again, not to, you know, sidestep by saying it depends, but it may actually really depend on in terms of the social norms question, in terms of like, well, what are people watching and when and where and why? And are they talking about it with their partner? Or how are they incorporating that into their sexuality? So I'm sorry, that was very long-winded, but there's my answer. But it's a beautifully nuanced answer. I love it. And that's exactly why I invited you on. So when we're talking about the individual level effects, it sounds like you would subscribe to the, the confluence model when it comes to 
you know, how pornography affects people. And for those who aren't familiar with the, the confluence model, it's sort of this idea that you can't just look at porn in and of itself in terms of how that is going to affect people's sexual behaviors. You need to look at it in combination with that individual's background in history, their personality traits and characteristics, their attitudes toward women, their acceptance of violence. So all of these things in combination, it's the confluence of these factors that helps us to understand when and why pornography might predict certain outcomes. But if you're just looking at porn in isolation, it becomes very difficult to to make any firm predictions. Does, does that sound like a fair summary? Absolutely. And in terms of the broader societal effects, you say that there's a lot that we still don't know. And, you know, part of my question was about kind of why there's so much discrepancies in the research findings. And I think part of it is is tied in with what you said about how the concept, the idea of porn is this really big thing, right? And so I'm curious if we can just do a little aside about the way that porn tends to be defined in research and whether that might be contributing to some of the the different research findings that we see. You know, for example, if somebody takes a very narrow or strict definition of porn versus somebody who uses a really expansive definition, do you have any thoughts on that and about the way that that scientists are measuring porn and what that means for our understanding of its effects? Yeah. In in a lot of ways, this is just a classic problem. You can substitute out the issue of porn for practically anything else that we study in public health or social science. And it's, you know, not uncommon that you come up with this same issue, which is that it matters how you define the exposure, pornography. It matters how you define the outcome. So, you know, here today, so far we've been talking about sexual violence as the outcome, but there are lots of different outcomes that people look at relative to pornography use, for example, self-esteem or eating behavior, or, you know, there's lots of different things that people look at. So how are they defining the exposure? How are they defining the outcome over what length of period of time are we following up you know is it cross-sectional is it longitudinal so all of those classic you know sort of parts of what makes a research study the methods slight variation in in all of these different kinds of things can influence what results you're going to get when you do the study and so um because there really hasn't been funding for pornography research and the kinds of studies that have been funded, you know, historically in the 80s and 90s were often like lab-based and very small samples and often college populations only. We just don't have the richness and the breadth and diversity of research studies that allow us to do meta-analyses in many cases and come up with, you know, firmer conclusions about some of the, the empirical questions that we have. Yeah. And what you're saying, I think, really points to the fact that you can't just look at a title and abstract and draw really sweeping conclusions about, you know, the latest study that finds that porn is or isn't associated with uh, a certain outcome because you need to look at the methods and how people are defining all of these things. A study I've seen recently that speaks to this is a study that asked participants to define what porn means to them. And we see that people are all over the map, right? Some people think that pornography includes 
swimsuit issues of Sports Illustrated, right? And, you know, other people have much more narrow definitions where it's, you know, videos of sexual intercourse or solo masturbation. And so, you know, people define it in different ways. And when you leave it up to the participant to define what porn means to them, then you don't actually know what it is that they're talking about or thinking about. So it's just one of those areas where you need to be really careful in reading and reviewing the research to think about the methods that were used. And I think that's really important for sex researchers going forward is to really take a lot of care and effort into thinking about how they're operationalizing and defining all of these concepts so that we're getting the best possible data. Agreed. Now, we talked a bit about the link between porn and sexual violence, but something else I want to talk about is how porn actually affects teenagers and and adolescents. You know, this is another area where we see that, you know, some studies claim that porn is inherently harmful and detrimental. It gives teens unrealistic ideas about sex and the human body. It doesn't provide a healthy model for consent. Then there are other studies that say there's no link between porn and things like safer sex practices among college students. And then yet other studies that say that porn is actually beneficial for adolescents in some ways, such as allowing LGBTQ youth the opportunity to explore their sexual desires and identities. So what's kind of your take on that overall body of work in terms of how you see porn affecting teenagers? Yeah, well, all all true. All of the above is true. And I think the most useful thing for me to do has been to step back from it all and, you know, ask, well, what is, what is the goal here? And for me, often in my line of work, especially because I started out my career studying dating and sexual violence prevention, the goal is usually how do we ensure that adolescents are going to develop healthy sexuality, positive sexuality, and respect for other people. So the most important thing is that they understand boundaries and consent and and also like pleasure and fulfillment and how to, you know, have uh, the sexual life that they want to have. So how do you make all of that happen? And how do you make all of that happen is a complicated endeavor and it doesn't boil down to just one thing. So there isn't just one ingredient that can ruin, you know, adolescent sexuality and, and young adults, healthy sexual development. And there isn't just one thing that, you know, can make it great either. So I guess I tend to think about it like is porn, um, in what ways is pornography part of a problem, part of a solution, and for which adolescents specifically, and and what do we want to do about it? So all of that probably sounds a little bit more like a like a complicated answer when I can imagine that there may be listeners who just want the one answer, like, is porn good? Is porn bad for adolescents? I mean, so here's what I here's what I can tell you. Like there's a number of reasons to worry. Right. So pornography is created to be adult entertainment material. It is not created to be adolescent educational material. And at the same time, it is completely developmentally normal, right, for adolescents to be curious about sex and to seek out images of naked people and and sexuality. It isn't porn's fault that kids want to do that. And it is certainly not the kid's fault that what porn is showing them is oftentimes things that are 
fantasy that are not even supposed to be realistic or things that they should try to copy or things that they should try to do. So the whole premise or the whole setup is almost like a, you know, it's, it's like a not good thing waiting to happen. So I guess the question is, what can we do about it? And what my team has decided is a reasonable approach is to try to engage adolescents when they're fairly young, like right around the age when they maybe have just first started seeing pornography, and get them to be become more critical thinkers about what it is that they're seeing to you know to think about the fact that it's most often material that is is created in order to make a profit for somebody they're not they're not trying to do a good service to the world or something like that and 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 show teenagers what they should do when they want to have sex and you know so just get them thinking about it a little bit more critically the same way that we would encourage them to think a little bit more critically about advertisements for for soft drinks or anything that they see on TV and just to be critical about their media critical thinkers about media consumption in general not different from that and that the way to do that is by not going so heavy-handed either that you're denying that there could be types of erotic material or there could be adolescents for whom there are some positives here and there that they may get, you know, out of not that I recommend that adolescents see pornography or be shown pornography because of these benefits, to be clear about that. But, you know, there are studies that have found that people say, oh, I learned something about anatomy. You know, I didn't know my my body worked like that. And I, I learned something accurate from pornography. Um, so that can happen or that people realize that there are um, things that they want to do or that, you know, that they're attracted to or things that get them going in a positive way. And they learn that from pornography. So, okay, that's, that's great. And we can acknowledge that. And by acknowledging that and then saying, you know, yeah, so those are some, some pros. There's also cons, you know, there's also some things that we really worry about. And they're all the things that you sort of said at the outset that this isn't, um, most of it, most mainstream internet pornography at this point is not created in order to lay out a template for how you're supposed to approach your partner about consent or boundaries or that kind of thing. And if you don't know any better, if you're a teenager who hasn't had sex before or hasn't had a lot of sex before, it would be easy to take the wrong message. So how do we counter that? And and I think the answer is to do it carefully and with a lot of like balance and acknowledgement that it's not like you see porn once and everything turns to a complete disaster. I mean, you have to be like reasonable about it and balanced, but explain what the concerns are. I guess that's my answers on that so far. Is there anything that I didn't address that you were kind of hoping I would? (laughs) No, I think you covered it. And for, uh, you know, people who are listening, if it's not clear by now, it should be that this is not going to be a podcast where you get that simple answer of, porn good or porn bad, right? It's yeah. it, it's a mixed bag. The research finds different things. And there can be truth to the fact that there are some positive outcomes and some negative outcomes. And again, it goes back to this idea that porn might be affecting different people in, in different ways. So yeah, it's one of those areas of human sexuality research where there just aren't simple, easy black and white answers. But since we're on the subject of pornography and adolescence, and you hinted a little bit about your approach to, you know, teaching 
adolescents to think critically about porn. Let's talk a little bit about this curriculum that you developed for teaching educators how to talk to their students about porn. Can you tell us a little bit about what's in it? Who is this for? How does it work? I'm curious to hear more. Yeah, so I got together with colleagues at the Boston Public Health Commission, uh, Jess Alder and Nicole Daly, and I had always gone into their dating violence prevention program that they run to talk about dating violence. And we realized at some point that the kids were pretty bored of just hearing what they should and shouldn't do with dating partners. And by mentioning some of the research that I had been working on in pornography, like the kids were suddenly really interested. They really wanted to talk about pornography. And so we realized, oh, okay, we can we can kind of engage them by by raising the topic of pornography these kids are going to, they're going to want to talk to us. They're going to want to, they, they want to hear more about this topic. And so we worked out a lesson plan and a curriculum. It's, it's nine sessions, one hour each. And sometimes people wind up doubling up and, you know, doing the entire curriculum in just five weeks or whatever, which is all fine. But we cover a number of different topics that are all organized in order to ultimately promote healthy dating and healthy sexual relationships. So it isn't really head on about like, here's everything about pornography from A to Z. It's really like, let's use this topic of pornography in order to have conversations about how we treat ourselves, how we treat other people. So the end goal is, is that sometimes surprises people. But, you know, what do we actually do in this curriculum? I mean, for starters, we talk to them about why are we having this conversation about pornography? Like, why do we need to talk about pornography? And give them space to talk about how present it is in their lives or not. And I don't mean here personal confessions about it. I mean, just, you know, how aware of it are they as an influence on adolescent culture or in their world at all? And so we, we let them kind of think about that. And then we talk about the history of sexually explicit images in society and, in fact, obscenity, you know, throughout history, who are the people who get to decide what's obscene and what's off limits and what's okay to see? And how do they use their power to put certain things off limits and, and, in effect, make judgments about people that how do we do we feel comfortable about that or not comfortable about that? And, And it isn't that we have a particular answer that we're promoting there either, but this is part of encouraging critical thinking. We just we ask them to think about who's in power, who decides what's okay to see, what's not okay to see. And then we do get into, in, you know, other sessions like, okay, well, you know, given that some of it's off limits, some of it's okay to see, given, you know, mainstream internet pornography today, which not all of them have seen normally when they enter the class, but about 85% of them have seen pornography at some point. And if they haven't seen it directly themselves, they know enough about it, like from their friends or from hearing about it, that they can participate in these conversations. You know, what kind of norms do we think are being promoted by that mainstream internet pornography? And are, you know, are double standards being promoted? Uh, what does it 
teach us about gender, our gender, our relationship to other people of other genders, that kind of thing. We do talk about whether pornography use can become compulsive. A lot of kids have questions about that, you know, sort of have heard about it. And so we, we talk about it or what should you do if you have a friend who says that they feel like their pornography use is compulsive. We talk about different forms of intimacy. You know, sexual intimacy is only one form of intimacy. And there are other forms of intimacy that are also fun. So we talk that up a bit. And uh, we talk about how we flirt, like what are healthy ways of flirting. And we do talk about the link to commercial sexual exploitation a little bit, because at least in our classes, we've had a number of kids who either knew people who wanted to be in pornography or were actively trying to be in pornography when they were underage, which is really um, a big risk factor for them. And so we try to talk a little bit about what is commercial sexual exploitation and, and how do you just, you know, be conscious of that and of risks. And we bring in as much information as we can about what it is like to work in the pornography industry. You know, you have to pay your taxes, for example, or you have to pay for STI, you know, sexually transmitted infection testing, things that kids maybe haven't thought about um, that just help it you know, the real world industry seem like more of a real thing. And and we do talk about also non-consensual dissemination of images, like, you know, people call it revenge porn, but, you know, what that is and ways in which that can be harmful to people and, and sort of local laws related to that stuff. All of these topics are usually ones that they have a lot of questions about, a lot of things to say, and they haven't had adults talk to them about it before. So we're trying to get their health teachers or sex educators ready to handle all these things with, you know, facts and sort of evidence and, and maybe a low key and sort of reasonable or nuanced perspective on it. It sounds like an amazing curriculum. And it's, it's funny as you're talking about the things that it covers, I'm thinking about how in my college human sexuality courses, I'm trying to accomplish a lot of the same things. And it, it's kind of sad that so many adolescents grow up not getting any sex education at all, let alone the, the comprehensive program that, that you've described. And then they get to college and it's only if they're fortunate enough to, you know, take an elective in human sexuality that they might get some training or education in this area. And, and I think it just points to this massive gap in the ways that we're teaching adolescents about sex and how there's so much room for improvement that could help to really set them up to have much happier and healthier sex lives and in relationships. And it's, it's just a shame that we don't have better sex education in place. So tell us a little bit about kind of the growth of, of your program and, you know, where is this in use? And do you have any sense of how many people are using it or, you know, kind of what the uptake of it is? Yeah, no, I'm, I will talk about that. And I just want to say, based on your, your, other comments that you were just making that I couldn't agree with you more. And I actually think that this is the real public health crisis. I mean, you've named it. The fact that we aren't providing comprehensive sex education just in every, you know, school uh, to every adolescent. And 
more than just even comprehensive sex education, that kids aren't also getting relationship education and to some extent in social emotional learning, stuff like that. Like that's the real crisis. If people want to look and see, point to the fact that we have a sexual violence crisis on our hands or dating violence crisis or, or, or violence, peer violence more generally, or when people grow up, all of the other health behavior problems that go along with these issues. We could do so much more to address the root of these problems by providing in a prevention-oriented way this kind of education to kids as they're growing up instead of, you know, waiting until people are young adults and then just pointing the finger at one thing and one thing only, which is pornography. I mean, it's, it's just, it isn't logical. So anyway, I'm happy that you made that point. Now, in terms of your question about how many people are using our curriculum or where is it? We've been fairly bad at record keeping. I will be completely honest because we're not, you know, we're not really, we're not doing this as a, as a job. I have a full-time research program and um, Nicole and Jess have full-time jobs that they are doing that are all separate to this. So this is, this is a small thing that we do on the side. And as a result, I can only tell you that we've had hundreds of people come through our training, which we're now doing online over Zoom, and they're from around the world, and they are definitely from every state in the United States, and they're also from all walks of pornography perspective. So, you know, we have um, ASECT, which is, you know, sex educators, sex positive, and that is absolutely where they're coming from, all the way through people who are um, counselors who provide treatment to people who say that they have sex addiction. You know, so it, just, a, just a really wide range of things that people do with their professional lives and maybe background experience that they bring into the training. And I think by focusing on Here's the small piece of the problem that we're trying to address in the world, which is that there are too many adolescents who do not treat each other in a healthy way when it comes to their sexual and dating relationships. And we think that we can help them by having these conversations. Let's focus on that. Um, And that seems to organize people and bring them together in a way that is actually really pretty productive. Yeah, that's so great. And just to go back to one other thing you mentioned, you know, when you were describing your curriculum is that it has an opportunity to accomplish certain things that never otherwise would come up, right? So for example, when you talked about how there are some adolescents who are thinking about pursuing careers in pornography underage, and they have a chance to discuss that, you then have an opportunity to prevent sex trafficking and, you know, child pornography from being produced and so forth. And so by having that opportunity to kind of open these these conversations with adolescents about their sex lives, we have the potential to, to better serve and protect them than by just telling them, don't have sex, don't talk about it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, you know, we didn't invent this idea either. I think we learned a lot about how do you, how do you change adolescent behavior by taking our lessons learned from some of the health behavior program efforts that went before us and some of them, which failed rather spectacularly and dramatically. Um, and I'm thinking about certain uh, drug abuse education programs, for example, like how do you engage kids what should you do? What shouldn't you do? And trying to like basically 
jam a one-sided point of view down their throat doesn't tend to go, it really doesn't go over well with anybody normally. Um, but particularly with teenagers, they want to be invited to, to think and to talk with you. And that is how they become more real. It's exactly like you said, like they'll open up and we do have this opportunity then to prevent, I think, commercial sexual exploitation by just like talking about some of it. Here's another important aspect of that, though. We also take care to talk about sex workers or people who do choose to engage in um, pornography and become performers with respect and, you know, value who they are and their adult choices and differentiate those from what should be available to underage minors. But conveying respect is a hugely important part of teaching adult, you know, modeling for adolescents how we think they should treat other people. Oh, I'm just, I, I, I love the nuance and just every answer that you give. It's just it's so refreshing to, you know, have somebody who can see all the different sides of this and the different ways to present it and how to have these, you know, respectful, sex positive conversations that aren't ideologically driven, but are designed to just really get people to think critically, give them the tools and skills and everything that they need. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing on this. So let's talk a little bit about parents right now. And, you know, many parents have to kind of be the source of sex education for their kids because, you know, sex education is not required everywhere. And even in places where it is required, it doesn't necessarily have to be comprehensive or even medically accurate. So what would your advice be to parents who kind of want to fill in the gaps for their kids on pornography and some of these other issues that we've been talking about, what resources might you refer them to? Yeah, great question. We've been struggling a little bit on what can we invent because there are a lot of parents that email us and want to come to our training or, or a few times I've actually written out a bit of a script just for my own personal friends who email me and they're like, oh, my kids discovered porn. What should I say to him? or whatever and i and i send them back like a list of a few things that they could think about saying or talking about depending on the age there's a few main things maybe to think about there's a lot of sex positive parents out there so i feel like they already know this that it's developmentally normal to seek out pornography and be curious P humans are pretty much wired to get curious right around the age of like 10, 11, 12 years old. And of course, we shouldn't punish kids for having sought out or seen pornography. It does make sense to monitor screen time and set limits on screen time use, particularly if you think that they're repeatedly um, accessing pornography. And then, you know, it takes multiple conversations to promote health related to sex with kids. So it's not like there's, there is just one script and you say it once and you're done. It's not a one time sit down conversation, but you can drop a, like a seed of knowledge in kids' brains as often as possible and be consistent with your messaging. So it really, really depends on the age of the kid in terms of what you want to say. But there are messages that you can give that are very basic about, you know, how it's important to understand that what you're seeing isn't real and that it is made for grownups. And depending on if, you know, if it's teenagers, you can talk about the fact that 
you know, sometimes the noises that people are making or certain like biological things that you're seeing are not all that common. And, you know, it may have it may have been true for that person in that situation, but you do have to just sort of remember that porn is made for a purpose, which is for adult entertainment. And if you really want to know how to please your partner for real, what it takes is communicating with your partner and finding out about them personally, because not all people work the same way. Their bodies are not do not all work the same way. So, you know, it really, it just it depends so much on the age and also um, what other stuff that they've had access to. I do really like the website Scarletine for teenagers and, and they do have a couple of articles on there about pornography use. And so sometimes parents want to know what they can give to their kids to read. I think Scarletine is a, is a great website. Yeah, that's what I got on that. And I think it's all great advice. And it's it's pretty consistent with what I tend to tell people about sex ed too, which is that, you know, don't think of it as the talk, you know, that one time thing where you cover everything you need to know, and then you never have to talk about it again. It's best to think of it as a, a series of talks that you're going to have, and you're going to need to revisit the conversation based on their age, their development, what their needs are at that point in time. And so the earlier you kind of start, having these conversations and normalize them. And the sooner you can make your kids feel like you're a trusted source of information where they can come to you if they have questions or problems or concerns, you know, the better off we'll, we'll all be. So I appreciate your answers there. Now we're running a little short on time, but I have two other things I'd kind of like to get into. One I know is it's a big topic, but I'm, I'm curious as to what your take is on the concept of porn addiction, because you mentioned, you know, the topic of porn addiction as well as compulsive pornography use in some of your previous answers. And this is another area where, again, the research is all over the map. Some people say porn is addictive and they promote addiction-based treatment programs. Other people say it's not addictive and we should think of it as a compulsion instead. So where do you stand on that controversy and how do you think about porn in this way? Yeah, well, I mean, I can only tell you my take based on... uh what I've read and what I understand, but it looks to me, if you have looked across several studies, that there is a percentage of the population that feels out of control with their pornography use. And it, language matters a lot to some people. I guess it doesn't matter that much to other people, whether we want to call it porn addiction or compulsive use. And there are maybe different, different, there's sort of implications about whether you call something an addiction or an impulse uh, control problem. But there are, we can say at a minimum, there certainly are people out there who, um, who will tell you that they're suffering, who, who need help, who feel like they're out of control with their, their porn use. If you look across studies, it looks to be about 3 to 16% of people who use pornography develop some kind of uh, compulsion or, or feeling of being out of control. So, you know, the best ways to help those people, I don't know that we have determined that yet empirically. There are a range of options. Not everybody is the same. So certain programs that like feel right and feel like they help people, um, that may work for some people, may not work for other people. I'm aware that there is a really big debate, I guess, about whether porn is um, addictive or meets the criteria for that or not. For me and my work and my purposes, um, 
that I'm not particularly compelled by that debate. Like for me, what's relevant is like, okay, there is a percent, there's a percentage of people who becomes uncomfortable. They become uncomfortable with their own use at some point. It's important maybe for parents to know that that is fairly uncommon. That is rare. So you don't have to worry that, oh my goodness, my child saw pornography. Are they now addicted to pornography? Like it doesn't quite work like that for most people. Um, that there are options for help for people who feel like they are stuck in that situation. There are options for help, you know, so, and it's, so it's something to add to the list that we both worry about and also want to keep in perspective, which is that it, it doesn't seem to be um, highly prevalent. And there are also solutions and we'll remain curious about which of those solutions appear to be most effective. Yeah. And I think my view would line up pretty well with yours and that there's still a lot that we don't know. But for the vast majority of people, porn doesn't seem to be a source of major problems or issues in their lives. And we really need to better understand why a lot of the people who claim that they are addicted to porn or that it's causing problems in their lives, why are they experiencing those problems in the first place? And is it really porn or is it something else? Because in a lot of the research I've seen, and in some cases, it seems to be more about shame for having viewed pornography because they feel like it's inconsistent with their moral values and, and attitudes. And in other cases where someone might have depression or anxiety or some other uh, affective disorder, that is, and then they're using porn as sort of a coping mechanism for it, but it's not making them feel better. And so, you know, it's the underlying psychopathology that needs to be treated and it's not really the porn that's the issue. So I think my view is that there's this tendency for people to always want to blame porn as the source of all societal ills, but that we need to be looking at porn in the context in which it's being used and look at the characteristics of the users and why they feel the way that they do about the porn so that we can develop the treatment approach that is best suited to that individual without just going to that point of porn is the problem and you need to cut yourself off from it. I agree. And I and one of the things that I think helps me sometimes in conversations with people who are asking the question like, well, why not blame porn for everything? And I, you know, is to help answer that question, which is that when we start blaming sexual, you know, a form of sexual expression, um, it's a very slippery slope where you start chipping away at people's freedom or certain subsets of people become demonized, become oppressed and become marginalized. That is not good for public health. So I think there's a lot of people who look at pornography and, and or the concept of pornography and they think, you know, but I hear that all, there are all these problems like, like addiction or compulsive use or, or like it could make your self-esteem worse or something like that. So why not just write it all off and, and say this is all a terrible problem? And it helps to explain like there are also downsides with putting certain things off limits or, or calling it problematic in ways that it is not demonstrably so because that also has implications for people's health and, and well-being. So, so we have to be careful about that. Yeah. And I think that's, again, I just love every answer that you give, but <laughs> I could talk to you forever about this. But I have just one more question for you. And it's about what the response and reaction has been to your work more broadly. You know, you teach about porn, you research the subject, and this is 
very politically controversial. And it sounds like you found some effective ways to kind of navigate conversations in this area. But I know a lot of porn educators and researchers who have been attacked on social media. They've been doxxed. They've had death threats made against them. I'm curious, have you ever encountered that kind of high-level hostility in your line of work? Or just kind of what has your experience been more broadly as you know somebody who researches and teaches about porn? Oh, well, um, you know, I haven't had those experiences and I think or I would hope that they are really rare. There's lots of things that we study in public health that are controversial for people, uh, I suppose. I mean, you name it, whether it's vaccines or firearms or, you know, there's there's a whole list of things that this affects people's lives and people are going to feel strongly about it. And I think that that part is okay. and. If for me anyway, I just try to keep my eye on the ball, which is what is the science saying and how do we make sense of it to the best that we can in a fair and reasonable way? And then what do we want to do with it in order to solve what we see as um, really urgent uh, public health problems? So for me, it, you know, there's I don't ever come into it and just say, like, porn is a problem period, you know, and that's what we're trying to work here to solve. No, it would be like, what problem do we suspect that porn is causing, like sexual violence or disordered eating or commercial sexual exploitation or, you know, you name it. Like, what is the, the public health problem we're trying to solve? And then how do we be as smart as we can at looking at the evidence that we have about how is pornography influencing this problem? So, I don't know, just by like staying focused on that science, remaining in conversation with people, even people who may not share your same opinion about everything, I think is healthy and, and productive and trying to be open and receptive and, and make sense out of all of it the best that you can. That's how we how we get through our, our puzzling problems. Yeah, I think your answer just demonstrates why you're such an effective model for science communication and, and research dissemination is it's the thoughtful approach. It's sticking to the data. It's not being afraid of the nuance and understanding and recognizing that people can handle nuance and that it's okay to have uncomfortable conversations and to have conversations with people who disagree with you. So, you know, I hope that for others who are listening who might be researchers and educators that they can really take something away from your approach because I think the way that you're doing your work is opening lines of conversation in ways that a lot of people have really struggled with in the past. And so there's there's just a lot of great things to take away from your work. So thank you so much for that and for this wonderful conversation. It was a pleasure to have you here. If you could please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about your work and maybe to sign up for one of your future trainings, that would be great. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. That was such a kind thing for you to say. And um, gosh, I hope that would be true. Um, all of that would be lovely. Um, okay. So yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm an academic researcher. I don't have like a website that people can go to, to buy anything or do anything. You know, if you Google Emily Rothman, I do have a violence prevention research lab website. And um, that website does have 
links to various projects that I'm working on. So that might be people's best option if they want to get a hold of me or find out more. Well, from one book author to another, a future book author, I we're going to work on getting you a website before your book comes out because okay, <laughs> people are going to want to know like where to go to find out more about you and your work and to access all of your resources. So we're, we're going to work on that. Okay, great. I will gladly accept that help. So thank you again for being here. Thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Amazon, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, which also has a section in it looking at pornography and its effects. So if you want to learn more about that subject, you can also check out my book. Thank you again for listening. Until next time.